For the last few weeks, we've been very, very slowly working through 1 Samuel chapter 1 to learn from Hannah's example on how to handle grief. That's what we've been doing. And the elders made a brief observation to me that uh, if we keep up this pace, we'll end up being in the book of 1 Samuel for seven years. And they're right, and I'm sorry, and I'm going to try with God's help to do better in the future, but probably not today. Um, I ended last week's sermon by explaining uh, when Paul says, we do not grieve like those who have no hope, that he's not saying that because we have hope as Christians, we don't grieve. That's not what he's saying. Uh, He's actually telling us how to grieve. He's telling us that when we grieve, which we will, we do so in hope. that we can trust in God's promises, knowing that pain and sickness and death and betrayal and the grave and all of it, they don't get the final words. Jesus does. Jesus gets the final word. And hope sets the target. Tells us where we're going and and faith gets us there. And on that road and that journey, it's okay to grieve. Because on this side of eternity, grief will find us. It's, It's inevitable. It was promised by Jesus. And to move forward in the face of grief, it will require courage. Will, um, but we don't need to be strong for God. We need God to be strong in us. And only when we do that, only when we can cast all our fears and anxieties and grief on the Lord because he cares, only then can we move on. Um, and we put our minds on the things above, the, the things that are to come, and we lock the eyes of our hearts um, on things that are unseen. And that's hard to do day to day. In this world, we will have trouble but we can find strength in this unshakable, indisputable fact. Jesus has overcome the world. And he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? That's kind of what we're banking on. That's where faith comes in. Uh, With faith, we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not because we're smart enough or strong enough or anything else. We can walk through the valley of the shadow of death because God is with us even there. That was last week, and if all that is true, like Dallas Willard says, if the Lord is our shepherd, then the world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. I like that. It's a good word, and I hope that Hannah's example taught us that never settle for anything less than God. Uh, When we go to God, we pour it all out. And after we pour it all out, we leave it, our grief, our requests, all of it in God's hands, and we walk away in courageous confidence that God is for us, God is able, and God is good. And here's the thing. I think that it would be a very reasonable thing to say, you're making a mountain out of a molehill by spending three weeks on this one scene with Hannah, right? Like her story might seem so small and insignificant. Uh, She can't have kids. She's sad. She refuses to eat. She prays. uh, She eats. And then she's not sad anymore. End of story. Let's move on. It feels like a small little story. Big deal. But it is a big deal because I told you in week one that I wanted to make the case that I think that Hannah might be one of, if not the brightest example of female faithfulness in the entire Old Testament. And one commentator straight up says that without any reservations. Hannah is portrayed as the most pious woman in the Old Testament. So how is that? I want to explain to you why he and I think that. You ready for this? Here's a few reasons why I think Hannah is a pretty big deal. Number one, in this short passage and the next one to come, she proves herself more faithful, more righteous than Sarah and Tamar and so many other barren mothers in Scripture. Number two, in verse nine of First Samuel one, you read that Hannah went up to the Lord's house. Who cares? Uh, well, it's kind of a big deal because no other woman in the Old Testament is ever said to have gone to the Lord's house by herself. Hannah, alone. In verse eleven, Hannah makes a vow to the Lord, and in verse twenty-eight, she fulfills the vow. 
And Hannah is the only woman in the entire Old Testament who makes and fulfills a vow to the Lord. Kind of a big deal. Uh, now, point four, I think we're on. Uh, of course, other women prayed, but Hannah is the only woman who is ever specifically said to pray in the entire Old Testament. You can prove me wrong. I'd love to eat my words. I just don't think I am. Uh, point five. Not only is she the only woman who's ever said to pray, her prayer is among one of the longest recorded prayers, both of men and women in the entire Old Testament. Yeah. If that's not enough, her prayer includes the most utterances of Yahweh's covenant name in a prayer, uh, 18 times by one. Um, she's a big deal. And uh, one female commentator says this, she calls Hannah a pioneer of the faith who is leading the religious spirit of her time into a new territory. What does that mean? means that Hannah is different. Hannah is doing, and in Hannah we can see something that Eli missed when he looks and sees a grieving woman and thinks she's drunk. Something that Samuel will miss when he's sent to Jesse's house to find the next king of Israel. Uh, and God has to tell Samuel this in 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Uh, God sees what we cannot people. He sees uh, beyond the outward appearances, beyond the outward words and actions. Uh, and Hannah may seem small to us, but I think that's what makes her so special uh, because God sees her heart and wants us to know that she is. Um, kind of cool. And this is a short scene, and on a quick read, we would easily pass over it. But like I said before, when we take time to really look at what the text is saying and understand the text, uh, we'll usually see that there's more going on than appears on first glance. Uh, we just have to slow down a little and soak in it and go, what is happening? Why is that being said? And Hannah makes a brief appearance in Scripture. And with that brief appearance, we see a woman who is weak in strength but strong in spirit. We see a woman that rises above her pain to show us truly tenacious faith. Um, and her example is prescriptive. We're meant and we're being exhorted by God to strive towards that. So when the world is going crazy, like it was in Hannah's day, uh, be like Hannah. Now we're going to pick up the story where we left off. Uh, the last two verses in this episode and our outline for this morning has three points. Uh, we worship a God who is worthy. Extraordinary miracles through ordinary circumstances is point two. And the third is this, the mission of God begins at home. Get your Bible with you. Open up with me to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1, 19 and 20, and let's hear the word of the Lord. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. I don't need this, right? Okay, great. That's awesome. I can see you better. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. And we'll start with point one. We worship God who is worthy. Uh, when we last saw Hannah, where was she? She, she left the house of God uh, with a good word spoken over, go in God's peace. And she left the house of God under the umbrella of God's peace. And we said this last week. She has no idea how or if uh, God would ever answer this prayer request. And yet she eats the peace offering in trust. And verse 18 tells us that after that, after she eats that meal, uh, her face is no longer sad, which is really cool. And Hannah's joy comes before she ever receives an answer to her request. The fact that Hannah's joy comes before she ever receives an answer um, makes her a shining example of what it looks like to live out. Uh, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Then what? Watch what happens. Uh, no. Present your request to God, and before he ever answers, before we know how it's going to work out, the verse continues, and then, 
after we present our request, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, Tim Chester says Hannah presented her request to the Lord, and now she knows the peace of having poured out her heart in prayer to the God who knows all things and who cares uh, for all people. Hannah's hoping God was enough, was enough to bring her back to the feast. And even though she doesn't have what her heart like longs most for yet, uh, she finds contentment and peace that God offers her through this meal. In the eating, she worshiped God. And in the eating, she received grace. And then she goes to bed. And I've preached an entire sermon on sleep before, so I'm not going to double-click that. But just remember, number one, sleep is a gift from God. Uh, Psalm 127, God gives to his beloved sleep. Number two, sleep is often a soft reset for us. Uh, there's a reason his mercies feel new every morning. They're always new, but they feel new every morning. And number three, this is from D.A. Carson, we are whole, complicated beings. Our physical existence is tied up to our spiritual well-being. Body and soul, what happens to one happens to the other. And because of that, um, our mental outlook, our relationship with God and others, it's all affected by our body and soul. And so Carson concludes, sometimes the godliest thing that we can do in the entire universe is to get a good night's sleep. And I said I'd keep moving, but my yes be yes. Hannah sleeps, and in the first part of verse 19, they all wake up early in the morning, they worshiped God, and then they head back home. That's what's happening. Uh, now what can we learn for it, from it? And I called this first point, we worship God who is worthy. And I want to highlight the fact that even though Hannah doesn't have God's answer to her request yet, she still worships him in the waiting because he is worthy regardless of his answer. She doesn't know what's going to happen, she worships in the waiting because God is worthy, whether or not, however he answers her question, God is worthy of that. And uh, that's a big deal. And for Samuel, because in chapter 13, we're going to see a scene with Saul, uh, the first king of Israel. He does the exact opposite thing. He's supposed to be waiting for Samuel to come to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And he gets impatient of waiting. And so he, the king, makes an unlawful sacrifice himself, which was forbidden. He wasn't supposed to do it. Because in Saul's mind, making a sacrifice is what Israel needed to do for God to give him the victory. Let me just do it, and then God will give us the victory, and then we can just keep going. I don't want to wait for Samuel. And Saul was confused about what worship is. He thought that um, if I do this, God will do that, and we don't worship to get God to do anything. That's not what worship is. Uh, what is worship? Thankfully, Marva Dawn can help us. Uh, she says this worship ought not be construed in a utilitarian way. The entire reason for our worship is that God deserves it. Worship provides opportunities for us to enjoy God's presence in a corporate way that takes us out of time uh, and into the eternal purposes of God's kingdom. And as a result, we shall be changed, but not because of anything we do. God on whom we are centered and to whom we submit will transform us by his revelation of himself. That's a lot of words. So what's the point? We worship God for who he is, not for what he can do for us. Uh, worship is not utilitarian. It's not a quid pro quo. If I do this, then God will do that. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, God's acts in this world are worthy of praise. There is a lot in Scripture of worship in response to what God is doing. Chapter 2 is almost entirely just that. But God's acts attest to this fact that he is who he said he is. His acts are not the engine of our worship. They're the gas that keep us going. The engine of our worship is God is worthy. God is enough. We don't wait to see if God will prove himself worthy before we praise. That's not how it works. Because uh, sometimes, at least what I do, I make my request and I'm not really ready to worship yet. I want to see if he's going to do it. And then if he does, then I'll worship him. Uh, we worship in the waiting 
steadying our hearts on God himself and not the works of his hands. Because if our worship is tied to our circumstances, uh, then our circumstances are the traffic light of our worship. Uh, Red light, God hasn't answered yet. Yellow light, not really sure. I'm doubting if he'll do it. He did it. Green light, go ahead. Uh, If our worship is tied to our circumstances, there will always be a wave blown and tossed around by the wind of life. Um, But if our worship is tied to the immovable rock of ages, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and who is worthy of all glory and honor and power and praise, if our worship is tied to that fact, then no matter what comes, we'll never be shaken. Um, And listen, I know there are some long-standing unanswered prayer requests in our church. Uh, I hear them. I join in them. So I want to encourage you to look to Hannah as an example of what it looks like to worship in the waiting. Uh, Not to prove that you are worthy of a miracle, but to prove that God is worthy of our praise, even if his answer is not now or no to the miracle that we've been asking for. Do you know what I mean? Uh, We worship a God who is worthy. That was point one. Uh, Let's move to point two. I called this Extraordinary Miracles Through Ordinary Circumstances. Uh, Sounds like a title of a kid's book. Um, Hannah's grief led her to the house of the Lord, and she made a request there. She asked God to give her a son. And how did God answer her request? Through very ordinary circumstances. He did. Uh, She surrendered her grief to God. She made a request. She courageously pressed on in the face of her grief, even not knowing how it was going to answer. She eats a meal. She goes to bed. She wakes up in the morning. She worships God. She goes back home. She enjoys the company of her husband. And then, boop, she's pregnant. Congratulations. And honestly, if we didn't know any better, we could easily read this as a normal human experience. We might be tempted to say Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and she conceived. The text says that. Big deal. That happens all the time, but the text also doesn't let us just make that assumption. This is just normal. This is how babies are made. Uh, There's a reason that this story is sandwiched between verse 5 and verse 19. Verse 5 lets us know it was the Lord who closed her womb. And then before she conceives, verse 19 lets us know that the Lord remembered her. He put his attention on her. He showed his covenant love to her. Those two statements let us know that this... um, Natural conception has supernatural fingerprints all over it. It's really cool. And yet, nothing crazy happened. And I thought about that this week, particularly as I think about the Advent season. Uh, Nothing crazy happens. God doesn't speak to Elkanah through a dream. Eli doesn't prophesy over her on this day at this time, you will have a boy and his name will be Samuel. Uh, Hannah doesn't have to dip herself in the Jordan River seven times before she gets pregnant. No angel shows up. She doesn't conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hannah's miracle is so ordinary that it doesn't really feel like a miracle. But the text makes clear that this isn't merely a case of the birds and the bees. This is a case of Romans 4.17. The God who gives life to dead calls into being the things that are not. What is impossible for man is made possible with God. And that's why I called this point extraordinary miracles through ordinary circumstances. Hannah had no idea if God would ever answer her prayer request. Yet in spite of her circumstances, she did one of the hardest things possible to do in the midst of grief. Do you know what that is? Um, She pressed on. She kept believing. She continued uh, just to go, believing that God would get her through. That is one of the hardest things to do in the midst of grief. And she moved on in faith, in God's peace, trusting that he is able, he is good, he is for her, whether she has a son or not. And only then was she rightly able to enjoy the good gifts that God had already put in her life. 
lesson one of her grief was don't settle for light and momentary comforts. She wouldn't settle for food and drink and the love of her husband and kind words. She wouldn't because she needed God. She went to God. She poured it all out. She's trusting him with it. And before, as she went to those things instead of the Lord, it would have been idolatry. It would have been self-medicating. It would have been doubting God. But now it's receiving good gifts from the Father of light in whom there's no variation. She was able to rightly receive those things that she had abstained from before. And it was in receiving those good things that she moved on. She worshiped in the waiting, and then Hannah went back home. She proceeds with her normal Sunday through Monday ancient Israelite faithfulness. Uh, and somewhere along the way, God birthed an extraordinary miracle out of her ordinary circumstances. And if Hannah wasn't actively waiting on the Lord and looking to him alone for help, she could have easily missed it. We could have too. Because really, uh, in this whole chapter, God hasn't spoken a word. He's behind the curtains, working in silent majesty. He closed her womb, and then in his timing, on his terms, in his way, in his love, for his purposes and Hannah's goods, he remembers her and blesses her with a baby. I guess what I'm saying is this. Miracles happen every day if we have eyes to see them. Miracles happen every day if we have eyes to see them. Unfortunately, we're usually too distracted by the brokenness of this world to notice God's little miracles. Um, and in a way, that's even understandable, really. The, the fallen nature of this world is so easy to observe and almost impossible to mix. So I'm going to give you a, an illustration. Say, you design and build your dream home. This thing is gorgeous. It's amazing. And you masterfully manicure your lawn. And you expertly just, I don't know, decorate and furnish the interior. This thing is just gorgeous. And when you're all done, you step back and think, this is so perfect. This is so beautiful. It would be wrong. It would almost be sinful to even step one foot into this house. If I do, if we touch it, if we live in it, it's going to get damaged. It's going to get dirty. It's going to feel used. So you never do. To be clear, this house is sparkling. Everything about it is brand new and you never even touch it. You got the scenario? Now, my question to you is this. What will this brand new and untouched house look like in 100 years? What's it look like? What's the paint look like? What does your perfectly manicured lawn look like? What does this brand new designer, expensive furniture look like? It's never even been sat on. What does the lush carpet look like in 100 years? It's never been stepped on. What's the deal there? Um, the deal is this, because of Adam's sin in the garden, death and decay are baked into the fabric of our world. Without our help, we didn't touch it. We didn't do anything. And yet, in 100 years, this thing is a wreck. Baked into the fabric of our reality because of Adam's sin, death and decay are evident. Um, the evidence of that is indisputable and it's overwhelming. And the reason that we're often distracted from seeing God's miracles is because we spend a majority of our lives experiencing and fighting back the effects of the curse. Uh, that's the truth. Uh, because of sin, death and decay are baked into the fabric of our reality. But because of God's grace, healing and restoration are baked in too, if we have eyes to see them. So let me give you a different scenario. Say I hand you a pocket knife. Van, you want to be my assistant? Uh, say I hand you a pocket knife and I ask you to make a small cut on my hand. What's going to happen? They'll bleed. You're going to cut my skin open, right? And blood's going to come out. And what will I feel? I'll feel pain. That's true, right? My skin is ripped. Blood's coming out. I'm going to feel pain. But what happens next? 
uh, will I bleed forever? No, I, I won't. Uh, will I be in pain forever? No, and assuming it's just a surface cut, what happens after that? Uh, blood clots, pain fades, skin heals, even bones mend. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, miracles happen every day. We just tend to overlook them because we've bought the lie that it's just how the world works. Uh, but it's not how the world works. The world is aimed at, geared towards, in the rhythm of death and decay. This is how God's world works with his grace all over it. We take for granted the little things that even when I'm hurt, in God's grace, because he's upholding this world by the word of his power, my body starts to heal itself. Restoration just happens. It's a little miracle. We just kind of just move on. And Hannah's conception could easily be filed as a normal and natural occasion, but she knows better. I told you last week, uh, those who leave everything in God's hand will eventually see God's hand in everything. Peninnah, Elkanah's other wife, uh, she missed it. She's got a house full of kids, but she's not thankful. She's not grateful. It didn't affect her at all. She missed it. Uh, but Hannah, because of this whole process, because she suffered for years of infertility, because she was constantly hurt, because she refused to settle for anything less than God, because she took all that pain directly to the Lord, because she asked God himself to remedy her situation, she shows us in verse 20 that she knows exactly where this child came from. Hannah sees God's hand all over her situation. Um, what does she say in verse 20? She gives birth to a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. God himself gave her this child. She didn't see this child as uh, the natural result of marital consummation. She understood that it's God who creates our innermost being. It's God who knits us together in our mother's womb, and because of that, we praise him, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made in a world where death is the norm. Every single life, every day of health, every little healing, every smile, every joy, every time we choose obedience, those are all supernatural exceptions to a broken world and a sign of God's grace. And sometimes God performs extraordinary miracles through seemingly ordinary circumstances. And the question is, do we have eyes to see it? That's point two. Let's close this thing out with our third and final point, which is really just a overview of the first 20 verses of 1 Samuel. The mission of God begins at home. How many times have I reminded you that the book of 1 Samuel picks up where Judges leaves off? A few? You guys sick of hearing that yet? <clears throat> I'm sick of saying it. Um, I had a reason why I did. Um, during this time frame, one more time, Israel strayed from God. They're a divided nation. They're divided by tribes, 12 tribes of Israel, and there's grudges and rivalries and all the rest, just like there is so many other places. Their families are in disarray. There's a lack of leadership. There's sexual immorality everywhere. Crime is up. Their economy is in shambles. They're ripe for oppression from other nations. Their priests and their prophets are corrupt, and everyone's doing what seems right in their own eyes. And at this point, Israel is so systemically broken. How will God even begin to fix it? Their problems are so big it feels like they need a really big solution. They need the fear of God to strike them like it did when God descends on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. They need a mass revival like the day of Pentecost. They need nationwide repentance like Nineveh. They need a reformer like Nehemiah who grabs people by the beard and curses them, stop doing this and come on. That's what they need, right? Their problems are so big, but what does God use instead? An ordinary, faithful, family, and a baby. 
God used a man named Elkanah who loved his wife, who faithfully took his family year after year to worship the only true God in a time of crazy idolatry. A man who, after chapter 2, you won't hear his name again in this book, easily forgettable. God used Elkanah. God used a woman named Hannah. An infertile woman, one of, I'm sure, thousands of that day and age, who knew to take her grief to God, knew to worship in the waiting and trust God to come through. God used their marriage and their ordinary, unremarkable faithfulness in the day-to-day to do what? To show his power in the midst of their weakness. God gives them a baby boy whom they'll eventually use to reform the entire nation. And in the first week of Advent, this pattern of a faithful family and a baby boy should sound pretty familiar to us, right? Um, And what does it tell us? Uh, One commentator says it like this. The good news of this passage begins with the righteous everyday affairs of a faithful family. I believe the Bible illustrates, he goes on to say this, and I like this a lot, so I included it. I believe the Bible illustrates that social change and reformation take place primarily in this way as the slow but incessant drip drip of water on a granite boulder will eventually change its surface so christians must be faithful to god's word living devout and godly lifestyles over the long duration in order to reform the church and the nation i wholeheartedly agree with that i do and uh, here's the thing y'all been here now for two and a half years and i know that over the last few years some have wondered why i don't use the pulpit to specifically address and confront the dysfunction of our society and the dysfunction of our political systems and the dysfunction even in the church at large. Uh, some have wondered and maybe are concerned why I don't do that. This world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, why not point it out and address it? And here's my answer. Because it doesn't take faith to see brokenness. It doesn't require faith to see and identify brokenness. Uh, it takes faith to point to and press on in hope. It takes faith to live as salt and light in the midst of it. Um, And there's a time for that kind of instruction. There is, whether it's an email, conversation, sharing a book, article, podcast, uh, maybe it's a Theology Thursday seminar or whatever else. There is a time and place for that sort of um, address. But John Piper taught me that um, the whole purpose of this pulpit, my primary job when I'm standing up here, is to put the telescope of God's Word on your eye so that you can marvel at the majesty and beauty of God. My job, uh, the purpose of this pulpit, is to help you see God and all that the Scriptures presented to be and for you to go, wow. Uh, and that's what I try my best to do week in, week out. Though, admittedly, not perfectly. I mean, goodness. Um, so what can we do? How can we say wow from this passage? The good news of this passage begins with righteous, everyday affairs of a faithful family, is what that commentator says, and, and that's it. And while that might seem like an inadequate answer to a really big problem, oftentimes, you can write this down, God uses mustard seed solutions to fix mountain-sized problems. Oftentimes, God uses mustard seed solutions to fix mountain-sized problems. And in these troubling days, that encourages me greatly. That makes me step back and go, wow, only God can do that. Um, So do you want to see widespread revival? Do you want to see a nation changed by the power of the gospel? Me too. I'm with you. Um, Evangelism, apologetics, ethics, faith in the public square are all good tools towards that end. Uh, We want to do that. We want to equip in that way. But let's not be like Eli from last week and neglect what's happening under our own roofs. Um, First and foremost, the mission of God begins at home with love, joy, Peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Fighting for holiness in our lives. Fighting for sexual purity. Fighting back doubt. Husbands loving wives as Christ loved the church. Wives submitting to husbands as unto the Lord. Children obeying their parents. Parents not provoking their kids to anger. Working quietly with our hands. Letting our reasonableness be made known to everyone. Loving our neighbor. Stewarding the blessings of God's uh, kindness to us. It starts at home. Holiness starts at home. And then it ripples outward. Um, Day in and day out. It may not even feel like anything supernatural is happening. But never underestimate what God can do with small acts of obedience. Sometimes he performs extraordinary miracles through ordinary circumstances. And uh, I'm praying that it would begin with us as a church. Uh, Let's pray.